This is the Author Archive podcast. In this episode, the jazz writer Alan Shipton talks to me about his new book, which is all about Jerry Mulligan, who came to prominence in the 1950s playing the baritone saxophone. That's the sound of Jerry Mulligan playing the baritone saxophone, recorded in the 1950s. Alan Shipton has just written a book called The Jerry Mulligan 1950s Quartets. It's published by OUP. Alan, welcome back. Is he such an important figure that he warrants, that he, Jerry Mulligan, warrants a whole book? I think he is, for, for three reasons, really. One, he's one of the very few people, and I can only think of a handful of others, who've made the baritone saxophone a friendly and accessible instrument. It's jolly difficult to play. And if you think of the great baritone players over the years, Serge Chaloff in this country, John Sermon, you can really count them off on the fingers of two hands, and that's about it. And Mulligan is up there as one of the ones who not only mastered the instrument technically, but managed to make it sound much more warm and approachable than almost any of the other soloists. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I think, is that he was a really significant writer and arranger. And one of the things that I've tried to trace in the book is the way he went from big band arranging for people like Gene Krupa right the way down to writing for the quartet we've just heard, which is just three tonal voices, trumpet, baritone, saxophone, and bass, plus, of course, the drums for the rhythmic element of the book, so uh, of the band. So what we have is somebody who's, uh, his great colleague, Bob Brookmeyer, said, the thing you need to bring to a mulligan rehearsal is an eraser. He rubs out the extraneous material and takes everything back to the core. And then the second thing is that this band, which didn't have a chordal instrument in it, such as a guitar or a piano, was really the first popular band to experiment with having no chordal instrument. And one of the things I've tried to do in the book is to see how that was, that was actually a liberating force for the three musicians who were playing tonal lines in that band. And this is all happening in the early 50s. To put it in context, this is before the late Queen's coronation. This is 10 years before the Beatles' first record. Um, this is even a few years before the first Little Richard record. So what was popular music like then? You'd be at the end of the big band era, so you would still be hearing those bands that survived into the 50s. Count Basie broken down to an octet, but actually this is the very time that he feels confident enough to go back up to a full-size big band again. The Duke Ellington Band is still functioning. And of the white bands, uh, the Woody Herman Orchestra is playing, the Stan Kenton Orchestra is playing. And Kenton's band is perhaps the kind of large-scale jazz group come dance orchestra because they were playing the Balboa Ballroom in Los Angeles at the time that people would go out to dance to. But at the same time, it's just the beginning of the rhythm and blues and uh, rock and well, free rock and roll explosion. But it's people like Big Joe Turner uh, singing Shake, Rattle and Roll. That recording is just before the beginning of the 50s. So jukeboxes 
are playing that, but they're also playing Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers and Horace Silver. So if you walked into a, a bar in Los Angeles or indeed in Harlem, you'd hear a mixture of big band jazz, small group, jump jive type material, hard bop, and a little bit of the great vocalists who'd come through in the 40s when the musicians' strikes were on, and so instrumental musicians were not able to make records. So Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, many of the vocalists, um, Sarah Vaughan being another, came through at that period. So that's kind of the background you'd have had on the jukebox. And at that time, jazz was popular. He came over and toured here in the early 60s, and uh, he drew huge crowds like a rock act would. He absolutely was. And I think it was the quartet that he founded in 1952 that broke through to that larger audience. And there were two reasons why that was the case. One was that until there was a slightly unfortunate incident with the police and a drug bust, the original quartet had that kind of photogenic Beatles-like appearance. You look at the pictures that William Claxton, who was a great West Coast photographer, took of them. He makes Chet look like James Dean. Uh, and when you see the whole band, they're a very photogenic group. And then they're playing music that you can hum or dance to. One of the things I remember uh, Chris Barber telling me is that that arch-traditional jazz player, Ken Collier, adapted Bernie's tune for his very first New Orleans jazz band. It was such a popular song that even a diehard New Orleans musician like Ken wanted to be in on the act and played it. I always thought that was that was a really interesting insight, both into how popular the song was and quite what a flexible musician, the apparently inflexible Mr. Collier was. And let's go back to Jerry Mulligan, the man, the musician. He decided to play the baritone. Now, if you're going to go to gigs and you haven't got a car, a huge baritone saxophone is impractical on the bus. So what drove him forward? Was it just the sound of it? It seems to be the case because he there's a little bit of an interview I've included with him where he says he started on the clarinet, he moved to the alto, he moved to the tenor, and then he finished up with the baritone. And that was the instrument that he really found great affinity for. That's not to say... He didn't continue to play other instruments through the early part of his career and then right through to the end. I mean, some of his final recordings are some of the best soprano sax playing I've ever heard. He was a wonderful soprano playing player. But I think that you can see that when he started working for various big bands and they were Elliot Lawrence, Gene Krupa and then Claude Thornhill, in every case, he joined the band as an arranger and then he got shoehorned into playing this very difficult instrument as part of the band sound if their regular baritone player couldn't make it. But he also played the other saxophones. And I've dug up and mentioned them in the book, a couple of film clips with Gene Krupa, where he's this very thin, almost emaciated looking mulligan is playing alto sax in the band. Um, he was still in his teens at that stage. Now, Jeremy Mulligan, the musician, he was obviously really good how much of it was inherent talent and how much of it was what he'd been taught there's lots of little details in your book one of them is that his parents engaged a black lady to be his nanny to look after him and she played the young jerry music that she liked so how much was 
from his background, from his innate talent, and how much was what he was taught? That's a really good question. And I think that I've tried to get as close to an answer. It may not be the answer, but an answer as possible. So he was definitely getting a very good academic music education at the succession of schools he went to because his father was a traveling engineer. He was moved on to great civil engineering projects all around the United States. So Mulligan grew up in a number of different places. But the the key place was Philadelphia, which is where the family settled for the his teenage years. And during that time, he was at a Catholic boys' school, um, Mulligan family, good Irish Catholic stock. And that's where he picked up the training on reed instruments and also began to arrange, though I love the story which I relate in the book, that his first arrangement, which he wrote when he was 12, was uh, Richard Rogers' Lover. And the nuns at the school decided that this was such an immoral title that he never heard it played, uh, which is a, a rather strange bit of educational fact. But the second thing is, as you say, he loved the music that uh, his nanny played to him when his parents were sort of otherwise occupied. And then the other thing he discovered was theatre music. And this is the era when big bands were playing in theatres. If you went to the movies as you were a teenager like Jerry in the early 40s, you would have heard a big band playing in between the screenings of the films. And he loved that sound. And he actually talks quite a, a lot about the fact that the first real music he heard live was the big band playing in the local cinema between film showings. Now, Alan Shipton, your book is the Jerry Mulligan 1950s Quartet. The first one was Jerry Mulligan playing baritone saxophone and Chet Baker playing the trumpet. Now, how much of this was a great meeting of minds? Later, Chet Baker, well, the drugs um, didn't do a lot for him. But at the beginning, he seemed to have it all. So did they hit it off straight away? Well, it nearly got off to a very bad start because Chep had a habit of warming up at ear-splitting volume. And Jerry was always very sensitive about things like that. So, in fact, it, their, their uh, initial meeting ended up in a shouting match because Chet had warmed up far too loudly for Jerry's sensitive hearing. However, they got over that. And they used to meet at a jam session in Hollywood Hills, uh, a place called the Cottage Italia. And that was one of these places where musicians just went to hang out and try out ideas. And I think at that point, they realised that they had something special in common. Then Jerry got the job of running a weekly jam session at a club called The Hague. And he had quite a floating pool of musicians. Chet suddenly came on the radar for more than just Jerry, because he had been playing at another club in Hollywood at the same time with Charlie Parker who was the great sort of guru of modern jazz at the period. Chet held his own. And one of the things you hear, and I transcribed part of this in the book, is you hear that he had this gift of playing a really sensitive second part to a dominant saxophone player. So Charlie Parker was probably the most dominant saxophone player you could possibly have at the time. And there's Chet weaving this intricate memory, uh, melody around the sound of um, Charlie Parker. It wasn't a huge step, particularly with the reputation that gave him, to be able to do the same thing with Jerry Mulligan. Suddenly, those weekly jam sessions at the Hague Club become the place to be to hear the band because of that chemistry between the two of them. 
It seems that American jazz was centred on New York. So how was it that young Jerry Mulligan, photogenic young musician, made his big breakthrough on Pacific Records, a Californian record label? Why did he go there and how? Well, he got there by using his thumb. He hitchhiked. But I think we should go back a little bit. So he's been in New York. He's been an arranger for some of the great bands. He has played on some records which were not yet as famous as they were going to be, but became hugely famous with Miles Davis's nine-piece group, what became known later as The Birth of the Cool. Jerry not only played on those records, but he arranged six of the 13 tracks they recorded. So he's very integral to the New York scene, but unfortunately, he gets lured into heroin. And he meets a woman called Gail Madden, who persuades him that he's got to leave New York. She's already succeeded in weaning a number of other very talented musicians off drugs. And she thinks she can do the same thing with Jerry. And she's convinced that if they go to the sun and the climate in California, they stand a chance of that working. She'd previously helped a very talented arranger called Bob Grattinger to come off drugs. And he'd ended up in L.A., working in as an arranger as an arranger for Stan Kenton. Now, it wasn't a magical thing. Gail Madden simply got in touch with Bob and said, do you think Stan could give Jerry some work if we turn up in LA? So suddenly Jerry, who's been writing for somewhat smaller big bands, finds himself writing arrangements for Stan Kenton, and that gets him settled and started on the West Coast. So I think it was a, a failed attempt, as it turned out, to quit heroin at that point. He does, however, quit it after he's sent to jail, but that's a, a later bit of the story. But it was the idea of leaving the New York scene where drugs were readily available, and it was definitely affecting his playing. And I, I've um, picked out some examples of the way in which his arranging and playing declined before he left New York. Coming to the West Coast reinvigorated both his playing and his writing. You mentioned the hard drugs, Alan. As um, a long-time scholar of jazz and jazz musicians, do you understand why so many musicians were drawn to heroin? I've talked to a number of people about this, and the two most illuminating interviews, one was with Jackie McLean, the alto player, who joined the Miles Davis Band in 1952, and he wanted to play like them. Miles had been tied up with heroin. In fact, he didn't come clean until 1955 or six. Um, Sonny Rollins was in the same band, and Jackie wanted to emulate them, and he thought mistakenly that the heroin would get him to the same level of playing as the others, and then he realised it was a dreadful mistake, and it took him a long time to get off it. After starring in a play called The Connection, which actually came here to London, which was a play about... African-American musicians and addiction, Jackie became an ardent anti-drug campaigner for the rest of his life. And so too did Sonny Rollins. Sonny had a terrible time quitting, but he went to Chicago and gave up the, the, the drugs in the middle 50s. And so there was a movement where people initially started to try and emulate people like Miles or Charlie Parker, and then realized that it was a terrible mistake. There are other very successful musicians who never took that course. I mean, Dizzy Gillespie may have smoked the old, old naughty cigarette, but he never got into hard drugs. And 
so there's a, a big distinction between those people with long careers who were hijacked to some extent by drugs. And you look at Chet Baker's tragic career and his eventual death by falling from a window in Amsterdam, which everybody believes was related in some way to his addictions, uh, whether it was avoiding people who owed him, uh, who, to whom he owed money, or whether it was just that he was out of his head. Um, it's a tragic end for somebody who could play so beautifully at so many points in his career. You mentioned the race thing there, Alan. Was race ever important to Jerry Mulligan? One of the quotes I've put in the book dates back to the time of that Miles Davis nonet. And Jerry says at that point, we were just a group of musicians who all got on together. And our common aim was more important than any element of background. And that's backed up by Miles saying very much the same thing about why he chose Lee Konitz to play in the band rather than an African-American saxophonist. So there was at that point in the early 50s a very positive spirit of cooperation. That's not necessarily been reflected by some of the writers about that music since. And I do pick up some of the writing that suggests otherwise. But everybody I talked to in the Mulligan Band, and I spoke to a number of his African-American colleagues, including the drummer, Chica Hamilton, including um, the, the drummer, Dave Bailey, who both gave me a very clear account of the fact that it wasn't ever an issue in the quartet. The quartet was about playing Jerry's music to the highest possible level. I also met and talked to not really so much about his work with Mulligan, but I met Peck Morrison, who is one of the other bassists who actually played with the Ellington band before. Jerry had this knack, often very late in the day, of choosing extraordinarily talented musicians, and many of them, had this incredible background in African-American music, but it was nearly always to try and find the right voice, and I'm talking about voice in the musical sense, for that quartet that guided his choice. Following on from that, Alan, it seems that the force that drove Jerry Mulligan on was music, the love of the music. Yes, I think it was, and uh, there are moments when either the pressure of fame or his marriage or one or two other domestic issues got in the way of his ability either to write or to band lead. Bob Brookmeyer says something very... Uh, I got to know Bob very well, who played valve trombone with Jerry for, on and off for a number of those years. And Bob says that um, actually being a band leader, the first thing to go is your playing and the second thing to go is your writing. Well, with Jerry... Both those things happened at different stages during the decade that I've examined in the book. But in almost every case, he wooed himself back simply because he wanted to make music. And one of the things I love is the fact that he was inspired by returning to the same compositions, often his own compositions, and reimagining them for different sized forces. So I take a piece called Weebida Bobida, which he wrote for the Elliot Lawrence Big Band at the beginning. He then scales it down for the quartet. We then find him playing with the 10-piece band of his own. And then we find him playing it with his sextet. And finally, we find him playing it at the end of the decade with his concert jazz band. So he kept finding new things to say with a piece of music. Once he'd got this shape and melodic and harmonic structure in his head, he loved fiddling with it and making it better 
often as Bob Brookman said, erasing some of it, cleaning it up, making it more Spartan. But in every case, he seemed to have this motivation to come back and explore further. This music that you write about, Jerry Mulligan, 1950s quartets, it's quite easy to get on with. Does it ever, in your view, just go over the line into bland? Well, there is a school of thought. One or two critics said that the return of the band to San Francisco in the uh, early 50s, when they'd, they'd been up there, they'd made their first record, and then they came back. And Ralph Gleason, who was one of the great critics for Downbeat and everything else, says that he thought that the initial surprise and originality of the quartet paled after a couple of years. I think that's probably true, but what Mulligan did to avoid it becoming bland is, first of all, he changed the instrumentation, and second of all, he enlarged the forces. And the, the sextet, which ran through 1955 to 6, is a really interesting band because, as one of his other biographers said, it was a very happy band. You actually feel the joy of playing music coming out of that, and it loses any sense of blandness just in the mixture of competitive rivalry and having fun that pops out of the grooves of every single recording they made. My favourite of the Jerry Mulligan 50s quartets is the first one. Jerry Mulligan, Chet Baker. Do you have, uh, have favourite tracks, Alan? There are two that do it for me, and I think the, um, the one uh, that everybody comes back to is My Funny Valentine. That worked for Chet as almost his signature theme tune for the rest of his life. He re-recorded it with a vocal, with his own quartet, with Russ Freeman a bit later when Jerry was imprisoned. Uh, and almost at every stage of Chet's career, he came back to that song. But for me, it's always that very first 1952 recording that they made in San Francisco with Jerry that really does it for me. And it's two things. It's harmonically very clever. I don't want to go into too many details. The book does. So if you are a musician, you can use the transcribed examples to sit at the piano. They're all um, in the same key. So I haven't transposed saxophones into saxophone keys. They're all in the same key so that uh, a pianist could sit and play the harmonies and make sense of them. And what happens in My Family Valentine is that Carson Smith plays on the bass the rising motif of Richard Rogers' original song. But Jerry is very clever, and while Chet is playing, he's superimposing some other harmonic ideas over the same basis. And this is one of the things that is so subtle and so enriching about the band. When you don't have a piano banging out the chords or a guitar playing them, you can imply all sorts of other harmonic patterns just in a couple of notes. And Jerry does this incredibly cleverly on that. But the other piece that I like from that period is one that they did for a DJ in San Francisco called Line for Lions. And it's just the band blowing. They're having, it's a bit like the sextet, they're having a great time just playing jazz. And I'm sure that's what it sounded like in the club. When you went to the Hague Club, there would have been times when you were just blown away by the the way in which ideas swapped between Cherry and Jet, and that, that's a track that does it for me. OK, last word, Alan. Jerry Mulligan Quartets of the 50s. Uh, thought, how good were they? I think all the bands that he led during that time had their great points. 
So as well as that one that you've mentioned with Chet, the first quartet, I would say there are two other exceedingly important bands there. One is the quartet with Art Farmer on trumpet, and it's hard to better their sequence in the film Jazz on a Summer's Day, where they're playing in front of a load of people in, in Newport, Rhode Island, and you can just feel the energy fizzing off the band. They play fantastically well. And Art Farmer was exactly the opposite sort of trumpeter from Chet Baker. He was a very technically minded bebop player. His harmonies were very much more advanced. But that he and Jerry got each other in very much the same way. And the drummer, Dave Bailey, said it was the hottest band they ever had. So that one, I think, stands out as being a really exceptional jazz small group. But the final one is the band that he ended up with, with Bob Brookmeyer at the end of the decade. And I love that band very much because it has a drummer I heard many times here in the UK and in the States, Gus Johnson playing drums, great Count Basie style drummer. And it had my big friend Bill Crow playing bass in it. Bill has been a mentor to me. He was incredibly helpful with this book. He found me photographs of Jerry right the way through from the late 40s to the early 60s. He read the manuscript to make sure that there weren't terrible gaffes in it and pointed out a couple, which I'm very grateful he found. But I love that band partly for the people. I never met Jerry, but I knew Bob and the other three well. And for me, there's just an emotional charge of hearing that final quartet. And Jimmy Woody, uh, my other friend, the bass player with Ellington, said in his liner notes of that, that once uh, Bob wrote a letter to Jerry about how he felt about this band. And he said it was like being on stage with Bach every night. Alan Shipton, thank you. The book is published by Oxford University Press and it's Jerry Mulligan, The 1950s Quartets. This is the Author Archive and this is Jerry Mulligan.